Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you. We pray that you'll take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Luke chapter 19. Continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, today's passage is the last one before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27 is what we will be studying this morning. And I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said, he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now as we consider God's word. Father, we want to humble ourselves now beneath Your Word, and we pray that You would help us by Your Holy Spirit to hear the Word with ears of faith, to receive it, Father, with hearts that are ready to obey. Lord, please keep me from error. Please grant Your church discernment. Lord, please build us up in the truth and in the faith today, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Expectations are powerful things. How we respond to life is often shaped as much by our expectations as by our experience. Unrealistic expectations can lead to disappointment, frustration, even despair. On the other hand, proper expectations can sustain commitment, effort, even faithfulness. Expectations are powerful things. For Christians, then, it's incredibly important that our expectations be defined by Scripture, by the Bible. 
We can't simply approach the Christian life based on our ideas or our assumptions. We need God, through His Word, to shape our expectations because in the end, we want to be faithful to what God expects of us, not what we might expect. Expectations are powerful things. And friends, that desire for biblical expectations leading to faithfulness is at the heart of this passage today in Luke chapter 19. There's a lot going on in this text, as you heard in our reading. There's a lot going on. But at the core, this passage is about resetting expectations. As we noted earlier, this is the last scene before Jesus reaches Jerusalem. He's been on the road since chapter 9, and the journey finally comes to an end next week, verse 28. Now, as readers of Luke's Gospel, we know what to expect when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. We know to expect rejection, betrayal, arrest, mockery, and ultimately death. We know to expect those things because Jesus has predicted them and because we live on the other side of Easter Sunday. But what do the disciples expect? What do they expect as Jerusalem draws near? Well, we don't have to guess. Luke tells us in verse 11. And it's clear that their expectations were wrong. Verse 11, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So what's their expectation? And immediate revelation of the kingdom, probably with power that drives the Romans out. But what's missing from that expectation? The cross is missing. The betrayal and the shame and the mockery are missing. Death is missing. The time between Christ's ascension and His second coming is missing. Just like we noted a few weeks ago, the disciples still don't see everything clearly. Or to use the idea of our introduction, they still don't have the right expectation. They expect the kingdom to come immediately. They're expecting Jesus to get the crown, but without the cross. And so what does Jesus do? He resets their expectation. That's the aim of this parable. He resets their expectation. Instead of expecting an immediate fulfillment, the disciples ought to be ready to wait. And in waiting, they ought to be focused on faithfulness. This is key, friends, for understanding this text. The disciples are not wrong to expect Jesus to be the King. They are not wrong to expect that the kingdom is coming. Jesus has been preaching those truths from the beginning of His ministry, so that's not the problem. The problem is that they expect those things to happen right now, immediately, with no delay. And that's why Jesus gives this parable, the last one before He gets to Jerusalem. He's resetting their expectations so that they'll live with the right goal, which is faithfulness to God until the Lord until the King returns again. And friends, faithfulness should be our aim as well, since expectations are powerful things that often shape our lives. We need Jesus' correction from this parable just as much as the disciples do. We, too, lose sight of the cross far too often. We, too, grow weary in waiting upon the Lord. So we need this reset as much as the disciples need it. 
And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to put ourselves in the humble position of being along with the disciples to receive the correction from Jesus. That's where we're going to go. With that in mind, with an eye towards better understanding God's kingdom, I want us to consider four kingdom expectations from this parable as defined by the Lord Jesus. Four kingdom expectations. And my prayer is that these expectations will help us do what the Lord calls all of His servants to do, and that's to be faithful. To be faithful. The first expectation is foundational, not only for this passage, but also for the entirety of Christian theology. The first expectation is this. Christ will come again as King. Christ will come again as the King. We've already noted the reason for the parable in verse 11, and the setting follows in verse 12. Listen again to how Jesus begins, verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. From the start, the key elements in verse 12 are delay and return. The nobleman goes to a far country, which by definition means that there's going to be a delay before he gets back. It's going to take some time. A delay is to be expected, in other words. But at the same time, his return is just as certain as the delay. Jesus is very clear on this point. The nobleman goes to the far country where he receives the kingdom, but then he returns. He comes back to rule and to reign over that which belongs to him. And this promise to come back is further established in verse 13. The nobleman is so confident of his return, he gives his servants a mission. He gives them a job. Notice verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. A mina was not a huge sum of money, about three months worth of salary. But the amount is not the focus. The mission is... The nobleman expects his servants to be profitable. Notice that phrase, engage in business. It carries the idea of doing so profitably, of making some return on the nobleman's money. And that's the mission for these servants. They've been entrusted with the nobleman's resources while he is away, but when he comes back as the king, they're going to have to give an account to him. They're going to give a report. That's the main insight here. The king's return is so certain, it ought to motivate these servants to be faithful because he's coming back and he's going to ask for his money. Then something unexpected happens. If we were telling the parable, we probably wouldn't include verse 14. We would just jump to verse 15. But that's not where Jesus goes. He includes this ominous note, verse 14. Listen again. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So the king's return is certain, but he's also opposed. Some of his citizens hate him. They even try to stop his coronation. This is outright rebellion. This is a coup. And so, we think perhaps the kingdom is in doubt. Perhaps the king's coming again won't happen after all. What if those wicked servants are able to stop him from getting the crown? Maybe the servants should hedge their bets and forget about the mission. Not so fast. 
We don't want to get too far ahead, but notice the first line of verse 15. When the nobleman returned, having received the kingdom. So the opposition fails. The rebellion is unsuccessful. The king returns, and he returns with authority. So again, notice how these two ideas from verse 12, delay and return, those two ideas are shaping the whole opening part of the parable. The nobleman goes away, so there's a delay until he comes back. There's even some opposition, but in the end, the kingdom is established, the opposition fails, the rebellion falls flat, and the king comes again and he rules over all of his people. Delay, but return. Friends, do you see how Jesus is giving us a preview both of His own passion and the subsequent history of all of the church? It's as though Jesus has taken the remainder of redemptive history and He's condensed it down into this one short parable. It's a preview. Jesus is the nobleman who goes away to receive the kingdom. That's a reference to His ascension again to the Father following His resurrection. The rebellion of verse 14 is the opposition of the Jewish religious leaders who hate Jesus and don't want Him to be the King. The stewardship in verse 13 is the mission of the church. To be the stewards of Christ's gifts until He comes back. It's all of redemptive history is just squashed down into this little parable. And while Jesus doesn't give us all of the details about what will happen in the end, He does give us the most important detail. Do you know what that is? He's coming back. He's going to return. There's no doubt about it. Raised from the dead, Christ has ascended to heaven to receive kingship from the Father, and for a time, the church is waiting. We are the church in waiting. But as we wait, we do so with confidence. How can we have confidence? Because the King is coming back. His return is not in doubt. That's not our theory, brothers and sisters. That's not our wish. That's not our hope. We're not crossing our fingers behind our backs praying that He does actually return. This is the Lord's promise. It's the foundation for all of the church's life. If He's not coming back, let's go home and do something else. But He is coming back. It's foundational to all that we believe. It's explained right here in God's Word, Christ is the King and He will certainly come again. There's no doubt. So how should we live in response? What expectation should we bring to the Christian life based on the King's coming back? What should we do? That's where we turn next. The second kingdom expectation from Jesus' parable. In verses 15-19, to 19, we learn that Christ will commend the faithful. He's coming again as king, and when he does, he will commend the faithful. The king comes back in verse 15, and with authority, he calls his servants to give an account. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Friends, I hope you see how the king's authority is assumed in these verses. He orders the servants to appear and to report on what they did with his money. He's in charge, in other words. And the money belongs to him. It's such a clear picture of the Christian's role as a steward in the kingdom of God. Whatever gifts 
or resources we received, they don't belong to us, they belong to Christ. It's His gift, not ours. It's His money, not ours. It's His life, not ours. And so when He returns, each and every one of us, this this applies to everyone in this room. You want some practical application? Here it is. When Christ returns, each and every one of us will stand before Him and give an account. As sure as the sun rises, each of us will stand before the Lord. The authority of Jesus is so clear in verse 15. Order them to stand before Me and report what they've done. And in response to that order, the first two servants picture what good stewardship requires. It requires faithfulness. Faithfulness. Notice the first servant's report. Verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. That's an incredible return. I'm not good at math, so I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a lot. It's a big return. It's incredible. This servant has planned well. He's used his time and he's used the king's resources to great effect. But even here, the king's authority is not far from the servant's mind. Notice that the servant says, your mina has made ten more. Whose money is it? It's the king's. That's key, friends. The return is incredible, but it's the servant's attitude that ought to get our attention. How exactly has the servant been faithful? How exactly has he been faithful? By having a clear sense of the king's authority over his life. It's your mina, not mine. That's how he was faithful. Embracing and submitting to Christ's authority is foundational for faithfulness. It's the first step of being faithful. To recognize it's his life, not yours. It's your mina, the servant says. I've simply stewarded in your place. And the king is pleased with this faithfulness. Listen again to his commendation. Verse 17, And the king said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You have authority over ten cities. Friends, what precious words these are. Well done. Well done. Good servant. This is not the main point of the passage, but brothers and sisters, I hope that short phrase stirs your hearts today to love God, to serve His church, to care for your family, to work hard at your job, to share the Gospel, to do everything for the glory of God. Don't you want to hear, well done? It's precious words from God. Well done, good servant. But did you notice what the servant is commended for? He's not commended for his fruitfulness, even though his return is incredible. He's commended for his faithfulness. The king says it very clearly. Because you have been faithful, the king says. Of all the things that please the heart of Christ, faithfulness is near the top of the list. Faithfulness honors the Lord and pleases God. And then just to emphasize the point, essentially the same interaction is repeated in verses 18 and 19. Listen again, verse 18. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And the king said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Again, the king commends the faithful servant. Even though the return has not been as great, the king is still pleased. How do we know he's pleased? Because he gives 
this servant some of his authority. He gives him five cities to rule over, just as he did for the first. The king is still pleased. And that's the principle, that's the principle at work in these verses. Faithfulness not only pleases Christ, but it also leads to greater responsibility in God's kingdom. Faithfulness is pleasing to God and it leads to greater responsibility. The first first servant is entrusted with ten cities. Second servant entrusted with five cities. The reward for faithfulness is greater responsibility. Now, there are all sorts of questions that we would have at this point in the passage. What does this greater responsibility look like in the age to come? Does this mean that some believers will receive greater reward or greater responsibility than other believers in the kingdom of God? How does the responsibility in the kingdom relate to Jesus' own authority? If He's the King over all things, how do we have responsibility under Him? There's all sorts of questions we might ask. But this is one of those instances where the questions may end up distracting us from the clearer, more foundational principle. And that principle is this. Stewardship in this life is preparation for the age to come. That's the bigger principle. Stewardship in this life is preparation for the age to come. How does all that work out? I don't know exactly. But I know this much. Stewardship in this life, preparation for the age to come. Part of Christ's kindness to His people, part of His reward, if you, if you like that, is to entrust His servants with greater responsibility in the age to come. Faithfulness today is the training ground for eternity. Faithfulness today is the training ground for eternity. Brothers and sisters, that ought to stir in you a deepening desire to be faithful with what God has given you to do today. The the principle here means that Now follow me on this. If you're only going to follow one part of the sermon, this is the part that you should follow. This principle means that there are no insignificant days, no insignificant callings, and no insignificant tasks in the Christian life. Whatever the calling, whatever the stewardship, it is aimed at eternity. Faithfulness today is the training ground for eternity. One of my favorite professors used to tell us every day at the start of every class period, God's will for your life is whatever He's given you to do today. And that's true, friends. That's right. The principle in verses 15 to 19, the principle of faithfulness today preparing us for eternity, that principle makes every day, every task, every calling, in every place eternally significant. And that's not my perspective. That's not my perspective. This is straight from Jesus. Look again at verse 17 and notice this little phrase that Jesus uses. He says, the one who's been faithful in a very little. You see that? In a very little. It's just one word in the original. The sense of that phrase is something trivial. A throwaway thing. Perhaps something minuscule in importance. But Jesus is saying that for His servants, there are no trivial things. 
The Lordship of Christ, which we read about in Colossians chapter 1, in between the first two songs. This is why we read that passage. The Lordship of Christ, which extends over all things, turns everything into a training ground for eternity for the Christian. If He's Lord over everything, then that means where do you have the opportunity to live out His Lordship? Everywhere that you are. Even the trivial things are arenas for the eternal glory of Christ to break in and transform the mundane of this life as a platform for the glory of God. And that means, brothers and sisters, that means, follow me, you do not have to wait for a bigger opportunity to live for the glory of God. You do not have to wait for Christ to bring you out of the smallness of your life in order to do something significant. That means you do not have to wait until God builds you a bigger platform to serve Him. Right now, you can live for the King. Right now, you can prepare for eternity. Right now, today, you can lay up treasure in heaven. How so? By simple, humble faithfulness. So if your calling tomorrow is to change diapers and wipe noses, then praise God, there's glory in that. If your calling tomorrow is to mow grass or to see patience, then do it faithfully to the glory of God. If your calling is to teach young children or build new buildings or make sales calls, then do it with every ounce of Christ-honoring strength you can muster. For eternity is being worked out in that classroom and in that office and on that job site and in that conference room. You don't have to wait. You ought not to wait. When the king returns, he's going to commend the faithful. He will commend the faithful. And that means every task in every place, living out every calling, is a place for eternity's glory to be seen. So do it with all your might. That's what Jesus is saying. The king will return, and when he does, he will commend those who are faithful. There is, however, a sad alternative to being faithful. This is one of those texts where all of the encouraging truths are at the beginning, and all of the sobering truths are at the end. There's a sad alternative here that Jesus describes in verses 20 to 26. This is the third kingdom expectation if you're taking notes and it functions like a warning from verse 20 and following Christ will condemn the foolish Christ will condemn the foolish a third servant appears in verse 20 and his testimony is markedly different from the others listen again to this foolish servant then another came saying Lord here is your mina which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief So this servant has literally done nothing. He's just sat on the king's resources. And he didn't even do nothing in a wise way. Rabbinic teaching in Jesus' day said the safest way to protect your money was to bury it in the ground. And this servant didn't even do that. He just stuffed it in a drawer. He didn't waste the money. He didn't lose it. He simply did nothing with it. And by doing nothing, by doing nothing, he was unfaithful as we're about to see. Why would the servant do this? This seems foolish. It is foolish. Why would he do this? Why would he be so foolish? Verse 21 gives his reasoning 
And it's not good. Verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Essentially, the servant blames the king. It's your fault that I did nothing. It's your fault. You're too hard on people. You're too rigid. You're too strict, especially with your money. I knew that I couldn't please you, so because I can't please you, I just did nothing because I was afraid of you. That's what the servant says. He blames the king. Now, we want to be good readers of the Bible, especially in the parables. So think about the parable and ask yourself, what have we learned about the king so far in this parable? Well, we've learned that he's humble. He went away to receive his kingdom. He didn't take it by force. We've learned that he's wise. He entrusts his resources to people who will use them well and provide a return on his money. And most importantly, we've learned that the king is generous. He's generous. He just gave away 15 cities to two of his servants. Think about that. Giving away three months worth of salary is one thing, but to give away an entire city in your own kingdom? And this king gave away 15 of them. Does that sound like a severe man? Does that sound like someone who's too strict and too rigid? Someone to be afraid of? No, it doesn't. And that's the point. There's something more going on with this servant. There's something more going on. And the king brings that into the light. Verse 22, listen to the king's reply. He exposes the servant's heart. Verse 22, the king said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest. Well, the king has caught the servant now, hasn't he? If the servant's evaluation of the king were correct, then at a minimum, the servant should have put the money in the bank. Even a severe man will take a little return over no return. So even if the servant's opinion is true, he's still been unfaithful. But that's the deeper conviction here. That's the deeper problem. The servant's opinion of the king is wrong. That's why he's foolish. He doesn't know the king. He doesn't know him. He's not in allegiance to him. His heart is not submitted to him. He doesn't know that the king is gracious and kind. He doesn't know that the king is generous and merciful. The servant's heart is for himself and not for his king. And ultimately, that's why he's been unfaithful. The third servant doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't know the Master. And for that, the foolish servant is condemned. Instead of greater responsibility, he is stripped of his stewardship. Verse 24, And the king said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Faithfulness leads to greater responsibility. Unfaithfulness leads to judgment. The crowd can't believe it. Verse 25, They said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. The king's ruling is just. Notice the principle that sums up the urgency of faithfulness. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Friends, this is another principle in God's economy. Another principle in God's kingdom. It's another expectation for how discipleship works. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's how Jesus put it in chapter 8. 
To whom much is given, much is required. That's how he puts it in other parallel passages. Here, he's expressing it in terms of giving and taking. The one who has been faithful in what he's been given will be given more. The one who has been unfaithful in what he has been given will see that taken away, even what's a little. So it's the inverse. It's just the opposite of the previous principle. Faithfulness in the present prepares us for the age to come, but also vice versa. Unfaithfulness in the present leads to judgment in the age to come. So what's the takeaway, we ask? What's the, what's the application here? What's the implication from this sobering picture of judgment? Well, there's certainly the takeaway that faithfulness is an urgent calling for the Christian. That's one takeaway. Faithfulness is an urgent calling. That much should be clear to each of us. There are consequences to ignoring God's gifts, disregarding Christ's authority, and just living for yourself. Or to say it a different way, it is foolish to focus solely on the present as though every minute and every dollar belonged to you. They don't. Every minute and every dollar belongs to Christ. He's the King. And that means faithfulness to Him in the everyday stuff of life is an urgent, high calling. That's a pretty clear takeaway from this principle. There's another takeaway here, though, that we might overlook. It's this. Knowing the character of the King is a powerful motivator to faithfulness. Knowing the character of the King is a powerful motivator to faithfulness. Let's use our sanctified imaginations and re-envision this parable. What would happen if the foolish servant knew that the King was kind and generous and gracious and merciful? What would he have done differently? Well, he wouldn't have hidden the money in a handkerchief. He would have done something rather than nothing. And even if that foolish servant became afraid that his investment strategy wasn't the best strategy, he would have immediately taken comfort from the fact that the king is gracious and the king is generous and he's merciful. Even if my return is too small, he's still going to receive it because that's the kind of king that he is. If he would have known the king, he would have acted differently. Knowing the king's character would have strengthened that foolish servant to be faithful Friends, the same is true in the Christian life. Knowing the character of Christ is a powerful motivator to faithfulness. Christ's character makes all the difference in how you live. When we know that Christ is merciful, for example, then we can strive to be faithful even though we know that our best efforts are weak. How can we strive? Because He's merciful. When we know that Christ is generous, we can give ourselves to simply serving wherever God has us, not worrying about whether or not our gifts are as important or as numerous as someone else's gifts, because we'll know the King is not holding out on me. He's generous. I'm just going to do what He's given me to do. When we know that Christ is gracious, we don't turn faithfulness into merit. We know that we stand before Him because of His grace, not because of our works. Do you see the difference it makes to know the King? 
When you know the character of the king, it makes all the difference in the world. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's so vital for you to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Get your concordance out on your phone later today and do this short little search of all the times that Paul in his letters talks about the knowledge of God. He wants believers to grow in their knowledge of God, their knowledge of the Lord. He wants them to know the Lord. Why? So they can pass a theology test? No! So they will live faithfully. Knowing the King, knowing the character of Christ is a powerful motivator to faithfulness. It strengthens you to do the very thing that Christ has given you to do. And that's be faithful. So, put down the Christian books that are trying to make much of you and pick up the books that make much of Christ. Open your Bible to read, not for a verse of the day that speaks to you, but for a verse of all time that speaks about God. Know the Lord, friends. Know the Lord. Knowing the character of the King is a powerful motivator to faithfulness. Go to God's Word every day and ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see Christ. And in seeing Him, faithfulness will follow. Faithfulness will flow from that. That's the third kingdom expectation. The fourth and final one is the hard one. And we're going to close with this. Verse 27, where the king deals with the rebels. The fourth expectation is this. Christ will crush His enemies. Commend the faithful. Condemn the foolish. Christ will crush His enemies. Remember back in verse 14 that some of the citizens didn't want the king to rule over them. They represent the religious leadership of Israel. They attempted a coup, but it failed. Christ is king, so what will he now do to those rebels? Verse 27 tells us. And it's one of the most bracing statements from the Lord Jesus in all of the Gospel of Luke. Listen again, verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now I use the word crush in the fourth expectation. Christ will crush His enemies. And some people might think that that language is too strong. Christ crushing people? Is that right to say? Yes, it is right to say. And I don't say that lightly. When Christ returns, He will unleash the fury of God Almighty against those who have rebelled against Him. With flaming fire, the Lord Jesus will inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the Gospel of God. That's the New Testament's language, friends. And it expresses exactly what Jesus is saying here in verse 27. Christ will crush all of His enemies on the final day. And it will be so terrible, they will beg for mountains to cover them from the wrath of the Lamb. And listen, as Christians, this should not make us boastful or proud. There's two errors when it comes to the doctrine of God's judgment. One is ignoring it. And the other is thinking that it makes much of you. It doesn't. It should not make us boastful or proud. It should make us weep in prayer. 
that God would save the lost. This was the Apostle Paul's attitude towards the judgment of God. Philippians 3.18, it's a verse that we ought to pay more attention to. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What happens to those enemies? Christ crushes them. So what do we do? We weep in prayer that God would save the lost for His glory. We pray and we preach and we proclaim to the world, be reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of eternal judgment is real, brothers and sisters. It is right and biblical for us to expect that Christ will destroy the wicked on the last day. And therefore, we pray and we preach. If you are separated from God today, if you're not a Christian, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to know that the wrath of God remains upon you. If you're not a Christian, you ought to know that verse 27 is also a preview of your fate. And so I plead with you this morning, if you're not a Christian, to hear the good news of the Gospel. Christ is more gracious than you can imagine. This is the King who laid down His life to pay for the sins of those whom He came to save. Christ was slaughtered in the place of sinners so that we would find life and forgiveness with God. So if you don't know Christ by faith, then I pray, I pray that today is the day of your salvation. Hear the Gospel, confess your sin, and trust that only Christ can save you. There's only two options from verse 27. Either you are crushed under the wrath of God, or you trust that Christ was crushed for you, and therefore you're saved. There are any number of people here today who would be ready to talk to you and then to help you follow the Lord Jesus as the King. That's what the church exists to do, friends. We're all a community of redeemed sinners and everyone is helping everyone else follow the Lord Jesus by faith. So if you're not a Christian today, I pray and pray and plead that you would hear the good news and be reconciled to God. Expectations are powerful things. The disciples had the wrong expectation about the kingdom. And so Jesus gives them this reset. And we need that reset too, brothers and sisters. And I pray that the result would be faithfulness in our lives. I want to close with a quote from Francis Schaeffer. Some of you may know Francis Schaeffer, 20th century Christian theologian and thinker. The main application of this passage is to call God's people to be faithful wherever he has them. And this quote from Francis Schaeffer's book, No Little People, gives some encouragement to us in that aim. Schaeffer says this, quote, There are no little people in God's sight, so there are no little places. To be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants you, this is the creature glorified. In God's kingdom, there are no little tasks. There are no little callings. There are only servants of the Most High King, faithfully waiting for Him to return. And so may we be faithful then with whatever God has given us to do 
And may we do it with every ounce of Christ-honoring strength we can muster, knowing that we will hear on the last day those precious words, well done, well done, good servant. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, how deeply we want to honor You. Our desire is not deep enough. Our efforts are not strong enough. Our aims are not good enough, God. But how deeply, Lord, our hearts do long to honor You. And we know, Lord, that You answer prayers that are offered to You in accordance with Your Word and in accordance with Your will and in the name and blood of Your Son. And so we pray, Lord, that You would make us faithful servants so that we would hear well done. God, I pray by Your Holy Spirit You would come now and strengthen every believer in this church to do their God-given task today and tomorrow and the next day and every day until Christ returns to do those tasks knowing, Father, that You are honored, that You received praise when we faithfully live wherever You've called us to live, doing whatever You've given us to do, and doing it with all our might to the glory of God. Help us, God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.